After the sermon and prayer, we'll sing from Psalter Selection 50, all stanzas. I invite you to open your Bibles with me. We turn to the book of Acts, and we will read together from chapters 13 and 14, selected portions of it. You may recall that over the last few times, we have been working our way through the book of Acts, focusing on the life of Barnabas. We have been viewing the gathering of the church as we have reported for us in the book of Acts through the life of Barnabas. This is the third service sermon. Last time we saw Barnabas being called to be an office bearer in Antioch. At the very end of the chapter, there was a famine in Jerusalem, and you may recall the people of the church in Antioch took up a collection, and they sent it with Barnabas and Paul back to Jerusalem. And that's where we ended, um, and at the end of chapter 12, verse 25, Paul, Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem, and they take Mark with them, and as we pick up the reading in Acts 13, verse 1, We have them back at the church of Antioch. Let's listen to the word of God. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews They also had John as their existence. This is John Mark. Now when they had gone through the the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so is his name translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. Immediately a dark mist fell on him. And when he he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. This is a different Antioch. And they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, 
say on. What we have from verse 16 through 41 is Paul's sermon in Antioch, a sermon which he is giving particularly to the Jews. He highlights various Old Testament things. It's not unlike Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He preaches, a, he preaches that sermon with a call and a warning at the end. We pick it up again at verse 42 after Paul's sermon. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. When the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of the everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I've set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up devout and prominent women and chief men of the city, and they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. As we come through the first part of chapter 14, we have an account of Paul and Barnabas. Um, There's insurrection against them in various cities and they have to flee. They flee to Lystra. They heal a man. People start worshiping Paul and Barnabas as if they were Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. Paul and Barnabas urge the people to stop. And the Jews from Iconium come and they end up stoning Paul. He's left for dead at the side of the road, but he recovers. We pick up the reading right after that incident at verse 21 of, verse of chapter 14. So after Paul recovers, they go the next day to Derbe, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church, And prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This passage will be our focus this afternoon. We'll do so particularly through chapter 14, verses 26 through 27. 
Let me read them again. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. May God bless both the reading and the exhortation of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned on a previous occasion, it is tempting whenever we take a biblical character to focus unduly on that person's characteristics. But I've come not to preach Barnabas this afternoon, I've come to preach Christ. Even though we are looking particularly at Barnabas, who on the one hand is a relatively well-known person to us through the book of Acts, we sort of have the primary Paul, Peter, John um, as the apostles, and then there was a secondary group of missionaries, Silas, Barnabas, Timothy, who we see a little less of, and yet they are there throughout But as we have emphasized throughout, and as our text makes particular clear, the focus is not any one servant, not, not even Paul, who takes the lead as the leading apostle in the book of Acts. No, there is a ga- there God uses many. The book of Acts regards the gathering of the church. In Acts 1, it begins with Jesus and his twelve disciples, and Jesus tells them, that you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He tells them to wait after his ascension until the Holy Spirit has come. And then he instructs them, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You are to witness, you are to disciple, and you are to baptize. What we have in the book of Acts is of moving from Jesus and twelve disciples who understood Jesus to be the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but yet for all intents and purposes were Jews and adherents of Judaism, the Old Testament religion. And by the end of the book of Acts, we have a church that understands many of the differences. And God uses his servants to bring that understanding. This didn't happen overnight. It was a process. And as we look through the lens of Barnabas' life, what we see is a man to whom we were introduced in our first sermon in Acts 2 is a very ordinary man, Joseph of Cyprus. And he was one of many who gave of his gifts or gave of his property, sold it, and gave to the church to meet the material needs of the church. And you'll recall that early on he is renamed by the apostles as Barnabas, son of encouragement. And as a church member, we saw Barnabas play that role, use the gifts that he had as an encourager. And in particular, we saw him go to Paul. After Paul was converted on the way to Tarsus, Barnabas came. And the New Testament church, the leaders in Jerusalem, wanted nothing to do with Paul. Even though they had heard about his conversion, they were afraid. He was a persecutor of the church. But Barnabas met with Paul and was able to convince 
the leaders of the Church of Jerusalem to accept Paul. In our last sermon, we saw Barnabas being sent to Antioch. You'll recall there was division regarding what was going on in Antioch. The Greeks were beginning to believe up until now, even though on the day of Pentecost there were many from various backgrounds who believed in Jesus, they all dispersed. They all went to all of their different countries. And the church in Jerusalem was primarily a Jewish church. And word had come that the gospel was being preached to the Hellenists, to the Greeks in Antioch, and that they were believing. And the church in Jerusalem was concerned about what this all meant. On the one hand, they were happy that more people were believing in Jesus. On the other hand, there was great concern. What does this mean? Does this mean we were going to have fellow believers who were not circumcised? Were they going to continue with the sacrifices and with the prayers that they had been accustomed to? What did this all mean? And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You recall last time we saw through our text that Barnabas had the eyes to see the grace of God at work in Antioch. And rather than responding with concern, he celebrated with the church at Antioch at their growth. And then he went and found Paul and brought Paul back. And for a year, Barnabas and Paul had been teaching in the church at Antioch. We've seen Barnabas use his gifts as a church member. We have seen Barnabas called to office. At the last time, at the very end, we saw that the relationship of trust had come to the extent when there was a significant amount of money collected and they needed someone who they could trust to take that money to the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas and Paul. And as we pick up our text, we have come back to Antioch. Barnabas is here once again and what I want you to notice, first of all, about our text is how this account of what we ordinarily call Paul's first missionary journey, as we have it in Acts 13 and 14, how the account is on both sides, if you will, are, are bookended by a story not about Paul and Barnabas, but a story about the local church in Antioch. Did you notice that as we read it? Acts 13, verses 1 and 2, we are immediately told about a number of individuals who have joined the church at Antioch. And then we see the elders at the church, after a time of prayer and fasting, feel called to separate Barnabas and Saul and send them out for missionary work. This church, which now was made up of various backgrounds, felt a burden to share the good news of the gospel, not just with Jerusalem and with Jews elsewhere, but they felt the calling to send out missionaries. And in Acts 13 and 14, we follow Paul and Barnabas for approximately the 2,200 kilometers that they traveled on that journey over the course of probably about two years. And as we come to our text at the end, what do they do at the end of chapter 14? They come back to their local congregation where our text says they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had completed. 
And so in our first point this afternoon, we want to learn particularly about the connection, the essential relationship that the Scriptures provide regarding the church and missions. Because we can't really understand Barnabas' role without understanding the framework of relationship he had to the local church at Antioch. As we come to chapter 13, you'll notice there are five names that are given to us in the first two verses. Two of them we know, Barnabas and Saul. But three of them we don't. There's nothing accidental in the Bible. All Scripture, including its grammar, is there for our instruction. So why do you think it is that these three names in particular are told to us? There is Simon, who we are told is called Niger. Besides these three words, we know nothing about him. His name is the Latin word for black. And so we can only surmise that he was of African descent, and that his name reflects the color of his skin. That's a pretty significant factor in the first century Middle Eastern context even as it is in many parts of the world today. Where skin color divides people, and where, in spite of the fact that many speak of the fact that they see everyone equal and are colorblind, racism is very real in the world today, including in our own society. And it has been. Throughout history, the color of one's skin has often been the basis for people thinking that you are lesser than they are. But what are we told of the Church of Antioch? Right in the midst of five names, one of them is someone who evidently was a black man. Second, we're told about Lucius of Cyrene. Don't know much about him either. The only thing we know about him is that when Paul writes the letter to Romans, he mentions Lucius as a co-worker and passes along his greetings in Romans 16.21. Cyrene's also in Africa. And then the third is Manan. Manan had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And it is evident that the reason we are being told about Manan is that in a church that by and large were attracting people of lower social economic status, it also was attracting someone from the court of Herod. His education along with his royalty is noted. And so as we come to this church in Antioch, what we see, first of all, is this is a church that is colorblind and classblind when it comes to the reach and extent of the gospel. 
And that is a sobering reality for us to stop and think about. It is said that in North America today, we are no greater separated by class and ethnicity than when we are at church. Of all the social institutions in North America today, the Christian church remains one of the most segregated. And that happens in all sorts of ways. If I asked you to think of the largest church that is gathering in this area today, you may be surprised, but there is a Pentecostal church that gathers weekly in Hamilton of almost 2,000 people, made up almost entirely of North Africans. Probably the largest single church in our region. If you go across the country, you find even within denominations, churches gathered by ethnicity. And there are lots of reasons for that. And it's easy to stand and just to describe that reality and make it say, well, suddenly we need to do different and better. And I understand that's not as easy as, as it is. But let us, let us understand two things about the church which are core even to the church's missionary calling, which are demonstrated to us in this text and in the book of Acts. First of all, the church, the gospel is colorblind. The gospel goes to all tribes and nations, and they all will be gathered. And secondly, it is realistic that in a world of sin, in which we are inclined to arrogate to ourselves some benefit from the color of our skin, which has happened throughout human history, there is no greater answer to overcoming racism and divide among people than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that is shown already in the first century in the church of Antioch. The Jews were concerned because the Greeks had been joining the church. Paul and Barnabas come and instruct the church in what happens. By the time they they spent a year there, they went back to Jerusalem and came back, so it's probably a year or two later. And the church is multi-ethnic. The church is made up of various classes. Matthew Henry points out the equality that even is in the list as it is presented. Paul's dominant in the book of Acts, but he's not listed first here. No, humility is expected, and respect is to be characteristic of working together in a church. What we have is a mix of personalities, a mix of background, Greek, African, Jewish, Roman, a reflection of the society within which that church had been placed. Now, the New Testament is not insensitive to the particulars of different cultural settings. We'll see that in a moment. 
We have two sermons in our passage. I didn't read either of them. I skipped over them perhaps in your own time after. You can read, and they're very different sermons. One is to Jews, the other is to Gentiles. And I'll highlight in a few moments some of the differences. Oh, it's not that the Bible is naive and says we don't pretend those differences are there. But it finds ways to bring the gospel forward. Acts 17, we see how differently Paul on Mars Hill brings the gospel as well. The second thing I want to point out about this church in Antioch is that the decision and burden for missions was one that came to the church through worship. Notice with me in chapter 13, verse 2. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after after having fasted in prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. Paul and Barnabas were willing to use their gifts and service of the church wherever they were sent. But it wasn't their decision. The decision to send them away was a decision that came to the church led by the Holy Spirit as a result of worship. And we have the evidence from the book of Acts reflected throughout church history that a healthy church is always a multiplying church. One of the most salient signs of the health of any local congregation is the extent of the concern they have for people who are outside of their own walls. And this sets the stage for our text. What we have in Acts 13 and 14 is an account of Paul and Barnabas going on this missionary journey for about 2,200 kilometers. And then they return to describe the work that they had done as they had been entrusted, in our te- according to our text, to the grace of God. What did Paul and Barnabas tell about that work? We don't have the full details. We can presume they told much of what we are told in Acts 13 and 14. It's not about Barnabas and Paul. It's about God working through his church. Faithful preaching, it said, has three components. One, the preacher is to explain the text in its context. We are to understand Acts 14, 26-28 in light of the book of Acts, which I have just tried to do. Secondly, we are to fit that within the message of the Scriptures as a whole. And certainly, The theme of God's gathering His church. Which is a work not just for the book of Acts in the first century, but a work that continues to the end of time. Last time I cited Lord's Day 54. What is God doing even today? He is gathering, defending, and preserving for Himself a church chosen to everlasting life. That's the point of history. That's why we're here. The third task of faithful preaching is to take that word and to apply it to the congregation. I spent a lot of time in the last few weeks in reflection and prayer 
as I found myself convicted by this passage to think of our own understanding of missions and evangelism here as a congregation and as a denomination. Let me just make a few reflections out loud. I don't I don't want for a moment to come as if I have all the answers and as if this says we're doing everything wrong, but I do think there are various things that come out of this text which challenge us. If we're going to submit under the Word of God, perhaps we need to faithfully reflect about. Notice, first of all, as I already mentioned, the blessing to the local church was mentioned first. The last chapter was about Antioch becoming a first major church beside Jerusalem. And now we see the church of Antioch worshiping, having been taught by Paul and Barnabas for a year, engaged in spiritual disciplines. We read in prayer and fasting. But what that focus does is cause them to look outward, not inward. They give diaconally and they send I'm making a presumption here. We're not explicitly told in the text. But I think it is fair to conclude from the book of Acts that Barnabas and Paul were among the most desired preachers you could have. If you wanted to call a minister, call Paul. Call Barnabas. If we only could have him every Lord's Day. They didn't send Paul and Barnabas out because they were sick of them. No, they sent their best to spread the gospel to the rest of the world that did not know it. They were gone for two years. We infer from the text that their financial needs were supplied by the church in Antioch, although we're not explicitly told that. But we see Paul and Barnabas coming back. Even when they're elsewhere, they come back to Antioch. They are tied to a home church. They are part of the church of Antioch. In our text, in verse 27, it says, They began to report. It's interesting It's actually, they reported all, is what the New King James says. Various versions has it differently. What is interesting in the Greek is that the verb is in the imperfect tense. This isn't, they came and wrote up a report in five or fifty pages of what they had done. No, they spent time, we are told at the very, they stayed a long time with the disciples And they continuously were reporting. They were living in the stories of the missionary church. I don't want to read too much into an imperfect verb tense, but it's awkward actually in the Greek that it is in the imperfect tense here, which implies there's something to it. There is something that the strength of the worship of the church of Antioch came and was fed by the expression and the extension of the gospel to other churches. What did Paul and Barnabas report? All that God had done. Oh, it wasn't their bravery. Although when you read the story, it's pretty dramatic. Paul gets stoned and left for dead. This isn't a story of ease. But it is a story of what God had done. 
Notice the fact that the missionary missions involve relationships. In chapter 14, verse 14, for the first time they are called apostles. Set apart by the church, seeking God's favor. There are formal processes. This is not something that Paul and Barnabas said, we have felt the call to go on missions. No, the church came to them and draw them. The church is sending, the church is naming. That's the emphasis throughout the whole passage. It would appear that Paul and Barnabas are supported by the church. Now, that was not always the case in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6, reprimanding the Corinthians, and said, Why is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So later on, Paul's writing to the Corinthians saying, You're not providing me any, in addition to spreading the gospel and working as a missionary, I have to work as a tent maker. And he suggests that Barnabas is working as well. We don't know what Barnabas' occupation was. But there was certainly a time in which Paul and Barnabas were not being adequately supported and they had to work simply in order to survive on top of their ministry work. And yet, that is also highlighted in part to show that they are not above working. This is, that letter is written to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are a church and a society that despised physical labor. That letter is written in the context of them not wanting anything to do with Paul and saying he's not worth listening to because he doesn't have enough elite, elite credentials. And Paul's answer to that is yes, and I happily work to pay for my own way as well. The gospel's not about elite credentials. But underneath it all, there is the implication that the church can and should support missionaries and ministers. Oh, I think there's significant to various details that we find in this book in these bookends regarding this first missionary journey to Antioch. It teaches us that a healthy church is focused not just on the local but the global church. The calling proceeds from worship and from spiritual disciplines. But the relationship is not one of just finding someone, sending them away and writing checks, but an ongoing relationship. It's also significant, I think, that they sent two men. At our synod a couple of years ago, Pastor Van Doderwaard wrote a report that highlighted the New Testament pattern is very different than the one that has developed in Reformed missions generally, where we often send one man to church plant or to go on missions. The general pattern in the New Testament is to be sent, is sending two. An emphasis on encouragement, an emphasis on the plurality of leadership. And you may notice that in verse 20, 14, 23, when they appoint, went back through the cities the second time, they appointed elders, plural, a plurality. Oh, there's many places we could go with the application of this. I just highlight these points, these points that come to mind when we look carefully at the relationship between missions and the church as exemplified between the church congregation at Antioch, Barnabas, and Paul. 
We suggest it provides plenty of fodder for us to prayerfully think about our own practices in this regard. But secondly, let us take a look at the lessons we can learn from this regarding the ordinary pattern of ministry. Paul and Barnabas travel 2,200 kilometers. There are 12 churches mentioned, some of them more than once. If you take a look at a map of Paul's missionary journey, you see they looped back and visited many of the churches both on their way out and on their way back. I don't have the time this afternoon to detail. Let me just pull a few highlights out. As I illustrate the pattern which seems to be here in this passage, and certainly is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Note, first of all, that they reported all that God had done with them, and so does Luke. I mentioned John Mark joining them and then leaving them. Two sermons from now, we'll spend an entire sermon on the argument that Paul and Barnabas have regarding John Mark. It's not as if the telling of the reports of what happens in ministry and missions is simply telling good stories of great success. There's controversy. There's arguments between people. It's messy. Note also the pattern that is there. And there are four elements to the pattern which, while they're not all present in every one, they are present enough that I think we can discern a consistent pattern. And I, I'm borrowing this from Dr. Boyce's sermon on this. He highlights the fact that in every town, it sort of followed preaching and miracles, followed by division, followed by persecution, followed by blessing. When they arrived, we are told in chapter 13, they're sent out, they make their way, and in chapter 13, verse 5, and when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God. The preaching of the word is central to the calling of the church in missions and evangelism. The word is preeminent. We know that doctrinally, don't we? But we also see it put into practice. Some might say there's an exception in Lystra in chapter 14, verses 8 to 10, where there's a miracle. But note there, we're told the man had listened to Paul as he was speaking even before the miracle. Now the miracles in New Testament times were, we believe, in by and large, the cessation of miracles, they were there at a time to show the authority of Jesus and of the disciples when the Scriptures were not there yet. We have the Bible. The Bible is complete. We do not expect miracles in the same way. No, we expect the Word to have power. And you'll notice throughout the emphasis on the Word of God, chapter 14, verses 44, 46, 48, 49, Throughout, we hear the Word of God, the Word of God. That's the theme that comes through. Missionaries, evangelists are people of the Word. They bring the Word. They bring the good news. They bring the Gospel. But they don't follow a formula. 
In our passages, we have two examples of preaching, as I already mentioned. In chapter 13, verses 16 to 41, we have an account of preaching to the Jews. And what's the nature of that preaching? Well, Paul goes through and he cites all sorts of Old Testament examples. And then he points in terms of the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ with a call to serve him. Chapter 14, verses 14 through 18, we have a summary of a sermon that was given to pagans. And there we don't have him appealing to Old Testament. We have him appealing to their common humanity. He points out that we are created. He points to God's work in creation and providence. Very different sermons. Very different basis of appeals. Paul and Barnabas are not blind to where they are. When they're in a Jewish setting, they speak in a way that speaks to the Jews. When they're in a pagan setting, they speak in a way that speaks to the pagans. Our evangelism, our witness, is not a formula in which we, we take the word exactly the same to everyone. No, we understand the culture, the context in which we are, and we bring it. But what do we bring? We bring the word of God. And no matter where we are, we can start with the fact that whoever I meet, I have this in common with him. Him and I, her and I, are fellow created image bearers of God. God created us. There are all sorts of aspects of my humanity which come through because I bear the imago dei, the image of God. We have a foundation to begin the conversation. And it always ends with Jesus Christ. Because when we begin, whether it's with the Word of God or God's covenant Word to Old Testament Israel, we inevitably get through the problem that the relationship between man and God is broken. And the only solution is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That indeed is the Gospel. Yes, preaching always leads, but the preaching seems to have an inevitable consequence in every one of the twelve cities Barnabas and Paul went to. It divides. It's a two-edged sword. Oh, we preach and we go out hoping for great results, but often the result is antagonism. It's expressed in various ways, but it's almost always there. And you know what? That antagonism... Often we think antagonism leads to indifference. People don't care. Has it ever struck you that when you bring the gospel, it often brings not an apathy, but it brings a derision. It arouses strong emotions and opposition. That certainly was the pattern for Barnabas and Saul. The intensity is surprising. They bring the gospel to the Jews. And the Jews not only don't believe, but they go and they stir up the Gentiles and they follow Paul and Barnabas to other cities. They're aroused with anger at Paul and Barnabas. They stirred up their minds against the brothers. If we look at this through the lens of Barnabas' eyes and Paul's eyes, we say this is so unfair. This is so unjust, the way they're treated. Brothers and sisters, we ought not to be surprised. 
Scripture says Satan goes around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If we are faithful in church building work, we can expect Satan to be present and to seek to devour us. Yes, in chapter 14, verse 22. They go back through the cities. They preach the gospel to that city, return many disciples, return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith, and saying we must, through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God. Division and persecution is to be expected. But also, growth and blessing. On the way up, they got thrown out of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. We hear of persecution. And yet, on the way back, less than two years later, they stop and they find home churches prospering such that they're mature enough that they can install elders and install local congregations. Paul and Barnabas likely had been in many of these churches for no more than one or two weeks. And the gospel was blessed that from that work, churches were established. Indeed, it was the work of God. Which brings us to our final point. As we look at this passage, we can see some lessons and learn some lessons regarding the selfless servants of a faithful office bearer. There is so much more in these passages, I don't mean by any way. I'm not intending by any means to be complete, but I'm attempting to look at the book of Acts through the eyes of Barnabas and travel with you. Barnabas was the more senior of Paul. We learned that from our previous sermons. You remember that when Paul needed entrance into the church, it was Barnabas who gave him encouragement. After the road of Damascus, it would appear that Paul spent three years in Arabia, in the desert, alone. Then he went to Tarsus for about seven years. That's where Paul went and found him and brought him to Antioch. And now, two to three years, a year has passed. They spent in Antioch. They've gone to Jerusalem. They've come back. We're about 12 years in. Barnabas has been mentoring Paul for 12 years. And if you take a look at the beginning of this passage, the first several references are to Barnabas and Paul. By the time we get to the end of the passage, all the references are to Paul and Barnabas. Luke, our inspired scribe, doesn't explain why he changes the order, but it would appear from the story and everything else that when we began the missionary journey, Barnabas was the senior one in charge, and as they went through, it appeared that Paul's gifts were more relevant to the situation, and Paul ended up taking the lead. What about Barnabas? We read not a word of complaint. You see, it wasn't about Barnabas. It wasn't about his honor. He was happy to take the less profile role. And in fact, when we look at the entire book of Acts and we say, what are the contributions of Barnabas? We never hear Barnabas speak. 
Now, there are many passages which Paul and Barnabas spoke. We don't know which, who to attribute the words to, but we're never specifically told Barnabas spoke. And yet, when we look at this whole, when we come to the end of the series and we reflect back and read through the book of Acts and look at it through the lens of Barnabas, we may very well conclude that one of the greatest uses of Barnabas and the growth of the New Testament church was his mentorship with Paul. Without Barnabas, humanly speaking, we don't get Paul. Is that not an encouragement for those of us who are called to be office bearers or called to the priesthood of all believers? Your name's not in the bulletin. You don't have a profile role. And yet, I know even among us how many mentorship relationships there are. How many servants of God have done great work for the kingdom that never got noticed but was demonstrated, that was brought to bear through the work of others, perhaps the work of your children? How many faithful ministers have come as a result of faithful parents? That's work of ministry, building the church. Barnabas illustrates for us it's not about rank and role. Now, Barnabas did not have an easy time. There are lots of physical challenges. Won't wind through the details of that. You can reread Acts 13 and 14 yourselves or the rest. They traveled 2,200 miles on foot. Take a look at the map. It wasn't easy. They had to encounter and deal in different languages. When they were called the Greek gods, they were dealing with an audience that there was language confusion. Now, Paul and Barnabas both likely spoke Greek. They likely also spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. And yet they come to Lystra, and there they are, well-educated men in the linguistics of their day and not able to communicate to the local people. They had to learn to discern between true and false religion, and they had difficult challenges put their way. And they had arguments with each other. But note also the blessings of ministry. Barnabas was introduced to us as the son of encouragement. And what is clear here is the encouragement that he is able to provide in so many of the churches where he ministered. Last week, we, or last time, we highlighted his calling to office and the note that the Scripture made that he had eyes to see the grace of God. As we come to our text at the end, where Paul and Barnabas had come and reported all that God had done for them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. I think the text allows us to say that Barnabas, with his eyes of faith, could see the wondrous things that God had done. And indeed, was it not wondrous? Stop and think about some of this. When they came to the Antioch of Persides, the second Antioch, they preach. Paul preaches. Many believe. As, as we finish the, the sermon, what happens? They walk out of church and the 
and all the non-Jews, all the Gentiles there say, preach it to us. So the next Sunday they preached it there. And then they got kicked out. Two weeks. Church is established. And a church, not only of Jews, but those Gentiles in Antioch would never have been in a synagogue before. Paul and Barnabas preach. They say, preach it to us, and they preach it to them. And a church is established. Oh, I'd love to hear the details of those stories from the words of Barnabas. What would those words be? Would they be about the brilliance of Paul in preaching? Would they be about the work that was done in terms of discipling and teaching and answering questions? No. I'm sure all of that happened, but what they would be speaking of is the work of the Holy Spirit and rejoicing in seeing God do His work of church planting and delighting in it. So much so that they're able to come within a few months' time and appoint elders in the church and come to the church of Antioch and say, praise God, there's another Antioch and there's another church. What do they do? They, they organize the churches. They appoint elders. They pray with and for the churches. And then, and this is also significant to point out when we take a look at the, what we learn about being a faithful office bearer from the life of Barnabas. Verse 28, they stayed a long time with the disciples. Jesus gives his servants rest. Jesus, with his own disciples, knew when they were tired and gave them times of rest. We serve a faithful master who knows our weaknesses and needs. And the story is a reminder that we do not serve alone, but we're cared for throughout. Traveling mercies, safety through hostility, wisdom from the moment, words to speak by the Holy Spirit, and rest when we're tired. What do we, Providence Free Reformed Church, meeting here in 2022 do with this? What we have is Barnabas, mentioned eight times in the passage, yet voice not heard, called to serve. We've seen Barnabas, the church member, the son of encouragement. We've seen Barnabas, the office bearer, with the eyes to see grace. All these words are not in the text, but could we not put as a label above the passage here, Barnabas dedicated life to service in the long road of obedience. If this was a story of human history, given all the circumstances that are there, there's no way the church would have survived. But here we are 2,000 years later talking about a church of our Lord Jesus Christ that goes around the world. And it's not because of the Barnabases, it's God's work. But it is through the Barnabases. God has gathered us as a congregation called by His name and given each of us gifts, but also laid upon us as a congregation the responsibility to go, to be disciples, to spread the Word, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
How are you using your gifts? Is Providence Free Reformed Church a healthy church focused on multiplying herself to the advancements of God's glory and to the coming of His kingdom? Are you a living member of this church? Oh, let us leave here praying that the Holy Spirit may take this word, apply it to each of us as we have need, that it may be to His honor and to His glory. Let's pray together. O Lord God most holy, You are a marvelous God, and humanly speaking of all the institutions in the world, the church seems so unlikely. Jesus, by human terms, a man of Galilee, crucified by Roman authorities 2,000 years ago. If that were the only story, Lord, there's no way there would be a church. But here we are 2,000 years later in every tribe and nation around the globe, Lord, there's a church that has been gathered, which is proof that Jesus is indeed not just a man of Galilee, but He is the Son of God who took upon Himself human flesh, who paid the price The Lord who set for Himself disciples, sending them out. And Lord, You've called us to that too. Lord, when we honestly look at the text and consider our own efforts, Lord, we are convicted of our shortcomings individually and as a congregation and as a denomination. Oh Lord, will You use the Holy Spirit and cause that conviction to lead to right responses and submission to that word. But we thank you also that we can come with boldness, knowing that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ covers also those sins. O Lord, apply your word. Be with us as we leave this place. It was a good evening also as we gather to sing hymns of thanksgiving to you this evening. And Lord, as we leave this day, we pray that all things may be to your honor and glory and a foretaste of your coming. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.